Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, Baha'i Blogcast listeners. Hello and welcome. It's me, Rain Wilson, of course. Who else would it be? And uh, I'm thrilled to have a first on today's episode of Baha'i Blogcast. I have the first mother-daughter combination. I'm so excited about talking to Barbara and Radiance Tally. You guys are in Maryland, is that right? Yes, we're in Maryland, yeah. DMV. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, we're really excited to have you on the show today uh, for a number of reasons. And I'd like to hear more about your individual stories and to get to know you as people a little bit. But I want to dive into something else first and the most important thing. One of the most exciting initiatives that I've heard about in decades, Barbara, I think was started by you, which is this Arise Pupil of the Eye conference. And people have been talking about it nonstop. Uh, You're getting ready to do another chapter. Can you please tell us about this conference, what its purpose is, what its meaning is, and what inspired you to help found it? Okay, well, uh, three questions there. Uh, the, what what inspired it? I'd have to say, there. You know, sometimes that you hear about the perfect storm, and although I've heard about pupil of the eye, you've heard about pupil of the eye. We've all heard pupil of the eye, pupil of the eye for decades sure. and decades. But somehow in 2019, I heard pupil of the eye, and it had different meanings. Now, several things were going on at the same time. One is that I was at the national convention as a delegate. And uh, we were talking about this conference. We were waiting for this race amity conference to come and the national said, hey, and so we're excited about it. And then we heard, well, we're not gonna actually have it for a while uh, because the direction was more about uh, reaching out to the outer communities and they wanted to bring together a couple hundred people, but they wanted them, they didn't want them to be overwhelmed by the Baha'is. They wanted to take the message of Baha'u'llah to them. So then right. that left a gap like, okay, but we were waiting for this. and. We hadn't had a pupil of the eye conference for 25 years. That means Radiance, who's 22, had never been in a gathering where there were that many African American people of African descent in one space and Baha'i at the same time. So I was reading. Um, so we were a little bit dis- discouraged, quite frankly. Some of us kind of got, got together and met about it and said somebody ought to do it. And even though uh, my name is Barbara S. Talley and, and the S stands for Scott. Somebody thought it meant that it stands for somebody because <laughs> I ended up <laughs> so I'm like Barbara's somebody. No, no, somebody's got to do it. I am not that somebody. So, but I uh, something really interesting happened. I was reading Sadie Oglesby's message, her pilgrimage mo- notes from 1927 with the Guardian. And can and you, can you tell us a little bit more about her? I know that she was an early African-American Baha'i, but I don't know anything about her story. Well, Sadie, Sadie Oglesby was one of the first, well, she was the first African-American to go on pilgrimage during the Guardian's time. Now, we know mm-hmm. that uh, Louis Gregory and Robert Turner went around Abdul Baha's time, but she was the first African-American, uh, I believe, that came during his ministry. And so he was so elated and uh, with her being there and he met with her. She, she was able to meet with him over a 20-day period. And every day, she said, he would bring up, why are there not more Black people in the cause in America? He said colored back then, but 1927. Why are there not more colored people in the cause? 
He went on to say that if you don't have black people in the cause, the, the, the faith will suffer. The world will suffer. He said, mm-hmm. I want to see more of them, the black or the better. He went on to say that every committee must have a black person on it. He said, how can mm-hmm. you how can you how can you teach them and reach them if you don't know them? So this proximity uh, importance that we're talking about now going in the neighborhood, Shoghi Effendi was talking about that back then. He was saying that black people must be because how can he said when you take the oldest race on the planet, the black people and the youngest race, the white people to have found, you know, maturity. He said, if you if you focus on the black and the white and they come together, all the other races in between will will adjust themselves and we'll have oneness. Because, Mm. you know, we always get that conversation. Well, what about the natives? What about the Asians? What about this? What about that? Shoghi Effendi answered that question. He said the black and the white are the farthest apart. And if they come together, everybody else will adjust mm. in the middle. It was profound. And he told her when she goes back, he said, spare no time, no expense. He said, I want you to go to, to the South and I want you to teach. And I want you to teach everybody. And he said, be insistent about it. Uh, she, said, my, she said, well, I don't want to have disunity. Some of the people don't want to talk about race. My husband's always bringing it up and I'm always telling him the shush. And he said, your husband's way is the right way. He said, you've been too nice. This is critical to the faith. He said, it's vital. He says, it's paramount. And if we don't do this, we will be dispersed. And he said, if we do it, this will be an area where we will not, in his word, we will not be molested. So, Mm. I mean, it was, I I read that and- Powerful words. Yes. And as an African-American who's looking at many different spaces where we are still second-class citizens um, and, and seeing- our community's not growing and developing and bringing more of us in. I really took that that message to heart. Um, and I, I, as I read it, it was like the Guardian was talking to me too at this time saying, mm. but the, here's the thing, I've been doing diversity training and working on race, you know, since the, since the, the late 80s. So I have never stopped talking about it. What's different now is people are starting to listen to me. <laughs> you know, before it was like, oh my God, does she have to bring up race again? Is race in everything? And I'm saying, yes. Oh, she's playing the race card. I said, well, take it out the deck. As long as it's in the deck, I'm playing it. You play your card. So, so, so there was this feeling of this, this heart that many of the people of the eye were feeling at that time about we're not going to get a conference to bring ourselves together. And in our communities, there's so few of us. In my Baha'i community, I, my family is the only black Baha'i family. Everybody's mm-hmm. Persian and white. So we don't get to see our culture. We don't see, you know, uh, we don't see us, our music, our style. And so when we leave the church, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a downer because it, they, there's a different way of worshiping or passing around a prayer book rather than just saying, I made my vow to the Lord. You know, we can just do that. But here it's like, you did that. They look at you like, what's wrong with her? And you learn to just hold your hands and smile and do whatever and then just drink your tea later. But I, uh, I talk about that on the show a lot about how kind of lame Baha'i devotionals are usually and, uh, and kind of like mumble half-heartedly these prayers and, and then, yeah, and then it's tea and cookies and it's not very inspiring to the heart. You know, we have to pray, we have to make worship with arts and music and singing and connection, meditation, you know, whatever it takes to have that, you know, that connection to the divine power. Um, but anyways, that's, that's a whole other topic. Anyways, we're headed towards your inspiration <laughs> for uh, the people so, of the eye. So, yeah, so that's why then I'm going to let Radiance kind of tell her part too, because Radiance has been my, my muse. But, but Sadie Oglesby, 
when I read her, her pilgrimage notes and then realized that in 1927, she had addressed the national, she had addressed the national convention at back that time before the Universal House of Justice even existed. They had the, the national unit convention or the national convention was being held in, uh, this one was held in Canada. So Canada and America, the United States of America, they met together for their national convention. And so mm-hmm. she gave a report to that group of people. She stood up in front of them and said a few of the things that, that I said. I mean, I mean, she laid it out that, you know, uh, that black people need to speak for themselves. They're saying perhaps during slavery, they needed a voice. But right now they need to have they want to say something themselves about their condition, that they should be. That, and, and it makes sense. It's like, OK, you know, because there's many people want to speak for us. But imagine someone who's, whose voice has been silenced for so long. It says, you know, what what great what great uh, service you would do to pre- create a space for them to be able to speak. And so she said, you wouldn't even notice. She said, I'm just one little drop of black, uh, one little black spot at this convention. And she said, if I asked any of you who that lady was, you wouldn't even know. But she said, Shogi Effendi says, we need to, if, if we're not there at the table, the faith will not grow. What is the oneness of humanity without having everybody there? Yeah. And speaking up for themselves. And so it was this reading of Sadie Oglesby's uh, and and the National Spiritual Assembly uh, of Canada and the United States in 1927 voted unanimously to send her address to every local spiritual assembly. That's how powerful it was. Now, I don't know why it didn't filter down all these years and nobody even knew who she was. Yeah. But, and so I, and there's also an account written for her in the book, Lights of the Spirit. It's slightly different than the verbal um, one that she gave at the, at, at, at the National Convention where they typed up the minutes. And then mm-hmm. from her notes, because every day after she met with the garden, she would journal. So uh, in The Lights of the Spirit by Gwen Etter and Richard Thomas, that book that they put together, there's a, a, there's a whole section on Sadie Oglesby. And so there's some similar things before between those accounts, and there's a few different things between those accounts. But mm-hmm. I read it, and what I got from that was confirmation. I hadn't planned to do a conference, but when I heard her talk about how important we were to the cause, realizing that our administra- that, that the guardian of the faith, the head of the faith at that time, was saying that black people, you are critical to the faith. You're not, we're not just, don't just come in and we'll tolerate you because it's a good thing to do. He said it is, he said you might, he, he told her, he said, tell them that this has to be the most important thing that they're doing. He, she said during the pilgrimage, uh, a lot of people would interrupt him and saying, well, this is happening in Turkey and this is where, happening in Tehran or in Iran. And he would shut them up. He said, that's not important. He said, you may think because you don't have a lot of black people there that it's not important. He said, but in the eyes of God, quote, it is paramount, paramount. Mm-hmm. He said, don't. And so basically I realized that here was a faith just as my ancestors, you know, several generations back were praying to God to, to, to relieve them of their suffering and their oppression in 1844 you know, and 1892, you know, mm-hmm. 1863, you know, came and, and he gave them that message. He basically said, God has, I mean, to me, it was like an answer to my ancestors' prayers that while they were dying in the fields and being bred like cattle, that God had heard their cries and, and stopped time and sent a new manifestation. Because we know whenever a new manifestation comes, time starts all over again. Mm. A new clock, yeah. a new whatever, a new yeah. day, a new day. And so it was from that point that I uh, decided that... Uh, I was going to do a conference. I had a couple of Persian friends that actually kind of encouraged me. And they were like, you should do it. And I'm thinking me, I'm already doing about 20 events a year, 20, you know, even more. And I said, you know, but as they say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. But 
what happened after that uh, was, uh, it's hard to put in words. I, I literally, you know, the only way I can equate it to is I was bitten by a vampire. I had no will <laughs> of my own. Literally, I had no will of my own, whether I eat, ate or slept or I'm on my own work. I just put my career on hold because I could not think of anything else but the conference. So I think on the other side, the, the saints and the angels and the concourse chose me for a mission. And I heard the call. And it's interesting because I reached out to my dear friend, uh, Sue St. Clair, who was, uh, that, that, that was the national, uh, on the, with the Nashville Spiritual Assembly, because the Persian that says, you ought to do it, says, and, and then he says, you ought to do it in Nashville. I'm like, I don't even know anybody in Nashville. I'll introduce you to people. So he introduced me to a, a beautiful family, uh, Ziva Ferdosi. And she got all excited. Come to my house, stay here, use my card, just go and plan your conference. I'll be in the background cheering for you. So that was one of my first cheerleaders that, ha- that introduced me actually to Sue St. Clair. Ironically, Sue St. Clair had come to the national convention. She was in the room with the delegate in the back because she wasn't a delegate. Several of us uh, at the end of that night when they told us we weren't going to have a conference met at Van Gilmer's house. And we all sat there, you know, thinking about, whoa, we're not getting a conference. And we weren't happy about that. And we're talking about all the things that are happening in our communities that need addressing. And Sue was also in that same room. And I still didn't, I mean, so we had, God was, you know, so he put us together once, it didn't happen, put us together twice in a smaller room, only 20 people, still didn't know her. And then two people at the same time says, you know, call Sue St. Clair. So Ziva mm. told me to, and, and my friend Dell says, call Sue St. Clair. She was the National Assembly. Really within the same hour, I said, okay, God, I got you. I'll call Sue St. Clair. Then we realized we had three occurrences where we had met. And when I told her of the vision and I went to Nashville for a week to talk to the, to the, to the, to the black people in that community, say, I would like to have a conference here, but I want to reach out to you first and let you know who I am. And yeah. uh, you know, part of that is, is history. And when they said, when are you going to do the conference? This was May. We were having a conversation. I said, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. You know, just like that. And because we were all doing the Bicentennial of the Bob, right? Yeah. Nobody yeah. wanted to do anything before that. And there were people that said, you shouldn't do it Thanksgiving. You should wait till, you know, January. It's Black History Month. or Fe- I mean, it's uh, D- MLK. MLK, MLK yeah. Or February Black Year. And you'll find a more receptive audience. Of course, that was a, uh, a SOTI. I call SOTIs, you know, the sclera of the eye. You know, the white part that surrounds the black is called the right. sclera. So we call them SOTIs. And the black part of the eye is called a pupil, so we call them poties. So you'll hear me say poties and sodies, the black and the white have <laughs> got to come together. It's the shorthand to just kind of get to the conversation, like, wh- which side do I get on? Well, who do you identify with? What does the world see you as? You pick. I'm not telling who's a pody or sody. You should know. My mom coined <laughs> the term pody, and I coined the term sody. Yeah, yeah. So radiance oh, nice. Yeah, so poties and sodies. So we kind of And, and Radiance, what, what was your involvement? How did, how did you uh, assist your mother, work with your mother on this? I mean, the biggest part, honestly, was just encouragement. Um, I understand, of course, the need for this conference still and the need it had then. And it was just, it was an, a really just amazing experience to just, I, well, just frankly, I've never really been in the majority Black space that isn't my family. Like mm-hmm. occasionally one visit to a church. But, um, and having like so many Black Baha'is just it was like it was a family reunion with people you haven't even met yet you know everybody was just so just happy and and excited and 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 just honored to be there and we it was just such a a lovely loving and supportive and 
really healing, encouraging, and empowering environment to be in that just really soothed my soul. And what happened at the conference? What what was discussed and what were some of the speakers and were there takeaways? Were people affected in a way like they walked in one way and came out with a, yeah. a different perspective and a different vision? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When my mom first asked me what I, you know, thought of the conference after it was all over, and I had said, you know, it. I realized after being there that, you know, you, you don't really know when you're holding your breath until you, you're finally in a space where you can exhale. And that's just, that's how it felt, like, just to be, to be normal and accepted and confirmed and you're in a space where you're affirming each other's value you're not expecting you know often when you're in majority um white or persian spaces because i mean you know being black i'm the minority in my religious life and in you know always in my educational life um and just in in every space and just so you're always often expected to assimilate to their culture as, as opposed to integrate and create this unity and diversity and create something new and bring a blend of different cultures and um so it was just nice to be in a space where you're affirming each other's value mm-hmm. um it was just it was really special while we were in Nashville to plan it i my mom and I are both poets and, you know, we are basically all of our poems to really document our life and our journey and our stories and our lessons learned. And we did a poetry fireside at um, Ziba's house and one of her relatives was there and, you know, po- poetry, that's how we heal. Um, it's, it's a very cathartic experience and it soothes our pain when we write it. And so I, you know, we were sharing, our, you know, our poetry of encountering racism and also religious prejudice and um, classism. And as Ziva's relative that was there, she said, you know, I was really inspired by the poetry that you two shared. And um, it was so heartfelt and, you know, it was raw. And she said, you know, I think this quote would be very um, comforting for you to hear. And she had said that when her, was it her uncle? Mr. Samandari. When he was pioneering in Africa, Shoghi Effendi, he said, show this quote to every, every African you, see, you meet and tell them that this is about them. And it was actually um, a quote in the Quran that said, we desire to show favor to those who have been brought low in the land to make them spiritual leaders among men and to make of them our heir. And, you know, that was just one of the most, you know, insightful, profound, like mm. affirming quotes for me to hear, just to know that, you know, we're not, we're not forgotten, you know, because it's easy to, to, to feel like you have been like our people have been. And to know that we are, it's finally time for us to be listened and valued and to lead. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, and I see it as spiritual reparation, spiritual reparation. See, many black people are, are waiting for uh, economic reparation, but I think we won't get economic reparations until we have social reparation. Our proximity, we know that 75% of white Americans don't even have a black person. Minority. In their, a minority in their whole social network. 
Wow. So, so we, so you first, you know, so if we're waiting for, for, for uh, economic reparations, they're not going to happen unless we have social reparations and they're not going to happen unless we have spiritual reparations. And Baha'u'llah gave us spiritual reparations. He says, you are like the pupil of the eye through which the light of the spirit, you know, flows through, you know, so mm. think about that. The pupil, the pupil, you are blind without the pupil. You know, if, if the white of the, of, of society keeps trying to block out that pupil, you got cataracts. <laughs> and, and Aaron Crossley gave me that one. He said, "So we're like cataracts. We're giving you cataracts." I said, "Yes." So get your white off of my black, so we can both see. Do your thing, you know. And here's the thing that we have learned is that if we use this uh, analogy that Baha'u'llah has given, and you know, there's some things that Rui Kanun wrote that says, you know, he never gave anybody else a station like that. He said that's unique to 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 pull out one group of people and say, you are like the pupil of the eye. We know that the Bible has says, and the meek shall inherit the earth. So this is fulfillment of that prophecy that this very people that have been downtrodden, bred like cattle, beaten, enslaved, kidnapped, all of that stuff, that, the, that, that we could get spiritual reparations from the almighty God. It says, now I'm going to put you in the center. And unless people see your nobility, humanity will, will, will not survive. I mean, mm. the very people that you have stomped on and put behind you, you have to learn to put them in front of you. You know, you don't put your, if you were the light of the spirit, you don't put, if you're in a dark room, you don't put the light in the back. You put it out in front of you. So there's mm. a lot of cognitive distance and a lot of challenge that many people inside and out of the face have to deal with because sometimes people don't mind having, um, they don't mind having equality. Okay, now forget the past. Let's be equal right now. But, but they don't understand that we need equity. We need justice. And if you've had, a, a, you know, four or five hundred years of people having overprivilege. That created the underprivilege. Mm -hmm. you have got to, you, they have got to come down a little bit. And we've got to come up a little bit. People are, are looking for equality. You know, back in the day, because I've done diversity training since the 80s and people thought that tolerance was enough. Well, would you want to tolerate your wife or tolerate? What if your wife said, you know, Ray, I just tolerate you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes she does. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's just tolerance. But yeah, yeah I get, but, you know, I get your really, point. You're exactly it, right. It, it, it's a lot better if you, you love me, you know, rather than tolerate yeah. me. So we are looking at equality. Most of America is looking at equality as the benchmark. But Baha'u'llah says equity and justice equity and justice. So for example, if black Americans, and we know that there are, our net worth is like, you know, $8 compared to somebody's a white Americans, couple hundred thousand or whatever the stats are. Mm -hmm. We know that the gap is so big that it will take, you know, generation upon generation to even close. So we know that because we were not able to, uh, because our, our, our forefathers worked for generations for zero pay. So they had nothing to give their children. In fact, once they had the freedom, um, I remember earlier in my life, I'm taking care of, you know, my father didn't get anything from his people. And when he got sick with Alzheimer's, I had to take care of him. So there was nothing in the family coffers to pass down that most white Americans kept grandmother yeah. or grandfather or uncle this left you this, this yeah. money. Much of what the, uh, that money was gained on either the spoils created from slave labor or from the, the uh, priority given them in jobs and entertainment. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in Social Security or whatever it was, you know, in the beginning, Social yeah. Security couldn't even go to, to farm workers and domestics. It was just only for wow. the, yeah. So you see, even back then, they, they created laws to keep you as a permanent underclass. Yeah. 
And, and so I was thinking, I was thinking, I'm so sorry, Barbara, love for you to continue. I, I just wanted to pipe in on that. Um, I was thinking about precisely that thing when I was talking uh, to a group of Baha'i youth the other night and including my son and I was telling them about redlining. And yeah. one of the terrible consequences of redlining, I mean, there's too many horrible things about it to fill in. For those who don't know, it's it was a, I don't even know how to describe it. It was a conspiracy between real estate developers, builders, banks to keep people of color in the ghettos and in the poorer communities and to keep them together and in the communities where uh, the, the housing prices were lower and the, and the quality of life was lower and not allow them into white neighborhoods and, and middle class, other middle class neighborhoods. And in so doing, also, you don't have that property to hand on because if you're forced to buy a house in a certain area that then is doesn't have any social services and becomes crime-ridden and uh, the house doesn't appreciate in value, normal white Americans buy a house and it doubles, triples, quadruples, quintuples in value over their lifetime. And so they get the benefit of that. But so many people of color didn't do to those racist policies that were in place for decade after decade. So that's just one example that that popped into my head. Please continue. Yeah. And even the GI Bill, you know that there were black Americans that that um, that served in the wars and only a small percent. And in the part of the GI Bill, you could get a small loan to get one of these houses. You know, there, you know, Levittown was one of those where they built these communities. So black Americans couldn't get the loans to get in there. So even though they served in the war, just like everyone else, they weren't able to benefit from many of the GI Bills. Just a small, small number were able to, but the majority, I'd say 95 percent, wow. could not even do that. So if you came back and you were able to get a small loan uh, or, or, or you know, an interest-free loan or however they did it, it was so low that, that they were able to build up this equity. And so what happens is the, the majority of equity of most uh, Americans is in their property. We know that even from the beginning of this country, it was set up that way that you only could vote if you were white and male and property owning. Those were the three mm-hmm. conditions that even let you be vote. Women even didn't get, white women didn't even get the right to vote until 1920. Uh, and so property has always been power, but black people were uh, prevented from that. And it's a whole nother story what happened to the farmland that black people did get that was taken and stolen from them over the generation so that they could not have property. And so if property is the way that you get most of your income and that you pass along to generation to generation, so you can start that business, buy that house, send that kid to college so you're not a debt wage slave your entire life, that was not afforded and it has, been not, has, has not been afforded most Black folks. And so what it has is it's created a discrepancy in the wages. Even now we know that Black women uh, and men make less on the dollar than white folks. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, so it's 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 in the system. Think about how people were fighting against having a fifteen dollar minimum wage, mm-hmm. and the people that were against it were making were millionaires, multimillionaires. They just mm-hmm. wanted more profit. So if you if we don't if we couldn't get the what, the income passed down to us, so we could start that business, so we could have wealth to build a house, so we could get equity, uh, so that we could uh, you know go to college and whatever, and not be in debt forever. We've, cre- we've continued the disparities that are here, here today. And so imagine two people uh, together and they're saying, okay, we want to just be equal. We're going to give, let, now let's say the black person is, is, is $10,000 in debt and the white person is $10,000 profit. 
you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. come on the scene and you're just saying, forget the past. Let's just be equal. Let's just give everybody $10,000. You get a black person $10,000, they're at zero. Try to get a loan with uh, or equity and get a business on zero equity. The, the mm-hmm. white person who had 10000 now has 20000 Equality won't make things right. Now, if you said equity, you said, okay, the white person has $10,000. i am going to give the black person 20000 so that there's some equity to mm-hmm. get towards mm-hmm. the justice. People will cry about affirmative action and, no, this is not right, and I'm being discriminated, and why are they getting this? They want to forget the 400 years of free labor that black people had. You know, Derek Smith says a lot in his uh, modernity and centering the pupil of the eye. He talks a lot about the first six and a half million people to come to the Americans, to, to, to these Americas, five and a half million were African. So who built mm. this space, if not the five and a half million Africans who worked here for free labor for three, four, five hundred years? You see? Mm. Mm. So, yeah. we, so, we, so one of the things I love about the faith is about justice. And we really need to make that you know, anti-blackness, uh, dismantling all the systems of anti-blackness needs to be our watchword, as, as well as justice and equity. How do we make it right? So spiritual reparations is one. And if we can change people's hearts, Shogi Fendi in his pilgrimage uh, with uh, Sadie Oglesby, he said, the need of the cause in America is the call of the heart. The need of the mm-hmm. cause in America is the call of the heart that can be given to no one. Save those who have suffered and traveled the road of sacrifice and humility. Mm. If that's not the mm. meek, who are those? Mm. What's going to save America? What's going to save the world? He said the world is watching. And if the American Baha'is don't get it together, that's why Abdul Baha, when he was here, he said, where's Mr. Gregory? I mean, at that time in those social circles, black people didn't fit at the table. He said, no, 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 get Mr. Gregory. He, he basically came uh, for a, a total social change in America. And, and, and everything that The Guardian has uh, told uh, Sadie Oglesby and everyone else is that we have to do something about race or blood would run in the streets. And so because, you know, the prison industrial complex has as many of us locked up as ever before, uh, slavery has never ended. You know, the 14th Amendment says, I mean, the 13th Amendment says that you cannot enslave somebody unless they've committed a crime. And so they immediately pass all kinds of laws, Jim Crow laws, all kinds of stuff that we can still lock you up, chain gang, all of that stuff. Um, and so many of our black and brown brothers are in jail right now, languishing, dying, you know, getting 10, 20, 30, 40 year lifetime sentences for nonsense that white people don't get that. So we're still enslaved in some respect. Um, you know. Yeah. Powerful stuff. And I'm just inspired and thrilled at this conference that you started and where is it going is it going to be an annual thing do you see where the pupil of the eye conference might be headed yes i i I think it's just gonna grow i think one day it'll be international i've had people calling me from london hey let's do it here (laughs) and i Mm. said let's just this is before all the COVID stuff but what happened is you know as radiant said it's rare that black people can come together and see themselves you know we know that the pupil of the eye reflects what's from it. What are, what's being reflected to us in our communities where we are usually the minority? Other people, other people and their values. But when we walked around the pupil of the eye conference at Nashville, we saw ourselves reflected back at us in all its beauty. We got mm. to see us reflected yeah. back in our own eyes. 
And just being around each other, we started off the day call, uh, calling the ancestors. We poured libation. Some of the African tra traditions were br br brought there and we prayed. You know, one of the persons mentioned, they're saying, uh, I think it was, she said, you guys pray for a whole, you know, half a day. And I didn't see anybody pull out a prayer book. She said, how do you guys know what to say? Everybody, the drummers were drumming and someone would pray and someone would sing and then the next one would go in. She said, how do they do that? She said, I've never seen that. And one of her comments, she said, this, you know, this is a beautiful center for 15 years, she said, but I've never seen it alive. Now the center is alive. And that's what Black people bring to every space, this energy, this aliveness. And so... Mm -hmm. What happened is what my goal was because I had got that aha spiritual reparation. This, this is what you need to go out and tell every black person. I, I literally teach differently. Now I would start with the three onenesses and progressive revelation before. Now I say, do you realize that the creator of has sent a new manifestation, a new teacher, a new prophet, a new messenger, with the sole message of oneness of humanity, we know that the pivot round which revolves all the teachings of Baha'u'llah is the oneness of humanity. And he put black people at the center of it. In fact, someone um, in a recent study, they said that, that uh, Baha'u'llah was the first Black Lives Matter activist. <laughs> We're saying that you are the pupil of the eye and through you, the lights of the spirit shines through. Well, wasn't Baha'u'llah's first like rule of law, the abolishment of slavery. I think that yeah. was yeah. that was his very first thing out of his mouth as a as a law. Yeah, and he said, how can somebody who's a slave himself to the almighty enslave another human being? You yeah. see, so but this whole thing wasn't really filtering down into our psyche, in our hearts, and into our communities. So we needed a space. So getting back to the impetus, I realized that the faith will not grow. This faith we love so much that's so beautiful that can save humanity. I don't think anything else can save humanity. It, was be, it wasn't being presented in all of its glory. And the people that needed to have a voice, these pupils of the eye, how are you going to talk about pupil of the eye when they don't, where, do you have any community? No, but in the next community only, we got a black person. No, you know, they, they couldn't even teach it because they couldn't represent it. They couldn't show mm. it. And so we realized at the conference that this is our faith. And as Radiant says, and we desire to show favor to, to those who have been brought low in the land and to make them spiritual leaders among men and to make them our heir. So we said, we are the spiritual leaders. Don't worry about whether black, white people like you or they validate you or approve of you. You don't need any validation. You don't need any approval. Baha'u'llah has put you in the center of this magnificent revelation. And so for the next 10,000 years, you're the pupil of the eye. Mm -hmm. You are the pupil of the eye through which humanity will see the light of the spirit. You know, and yeah. so... Just hearing that was just so, I mean, people, when you said, how did they come and leave differently? People, I've heard people say, I came in there bowed, broken. I left out with my backbone straight. I'm a pupil of the eye. And that quote was on all the t-shirts that you designed. Yes, I designed the t-shirt and put that quote on the back of the t-shirt so that uh, people would be able to see and remember and leave from this conference that, no, you don't, you have not been forsaken. You have not been forsaken. God yeah. has heard your cry. And he has made you the pupil of the eye, you know, so and people came out of there seeing pupil of the eye in a whole different way. And for whites, there were some sodies that were there. We said, you know, if the pupil of the eye is to show, bring this light to humanity because we have suffered and traveled the world of sacrifice and humility. So we've been prepared for this work. Uh, your role as a sclera 
What's the role of sclera? To, to support. Mm. It's mm. A, to support the pupil of the eye. It's firm, whereas the pupil is an opening. It's not really a space. I mean, it's not really a firm space. It opens, it contracts, and it expands. And the pupil, the light that comes through the pupil protects the retina. And all the brain cells from our consciousness, our, our sight, come from, you know, from the retina. So if too much light gets to the retina, you're blind. So, mm. so the pupil regulates all the light coming into humanity. And yeah. it shows, it reflects what we see in humanity. Now that's, I, I love that, the continuation of that analogy that the white of the eye is there to support the pupil. That's, 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 really, that's really beautiful. Radiance, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better. Um, and you had talked about being uh, poets. And I'd love to hear about this aspect of uh, your faith. How is your poetry connected to your faith? And you, you said that your poetry is kind of helps you express your personal story, you know, on your journey, on your spiritual path. Uh, Radiance, can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of your work oh, and faith yeah. and art? Definitely. Um, it's really special to be in a faith where art is worship. You know, I mean, I'm a poet, and one of the quotes by the Bob, it was in the, in, the, in the Dawnbreakers, and he said, treasures lie hidden beneath the throne of God. The key to those treasures is the tongue of poets. Like, it's just so profound. And, you know, to think, wow, like, you know, by uh, using my art and, and, and um, my calling, I am... I am worshiping God and I am serving and I'm, I'm also a visual artist. And I also really love the quote that um, Abdullah has said that when thy fingers grasp the paintbrush, it is as if thou had said prayers in the temple. Mm -hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's just really beautiful to, to show, to know that, you know, the arts, they do elevate your spirit. And it, my life has really just been, our lives have been a true testament of how healing and moving uh, the arts can be. And as the, you know, there's another quote about poetry that, you know, it stirs the heart more deeply than, mm. than prose. And we've definitely noticed that, you know, sometimes um, it might, when we're trying to educate uh, people about, you know, you know, ignorance and, and racism and the experiences we're dealing with, but sometimes it's just words. It's just kind of in through one ear out the other, but I don't know when you put it in a poem and when you share it through art, it, it connects to, it connects to hearts more and, and it helps people feel and empathize you with you in a way that they normally can't. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that uh, Baha'u'llah's first revelation in the C.H. Hall was a poem. It was, you know, emanations from the cloud of unknowing or tablet of the mist of the unknown. It had, had a lot of different titles, but it's essentially uh, a poem. And I have to ask you guys, and I was going to do this at the end, but since we're on the topic, uh, you got to share some poetry with us. You've got to, we, we need to hear something. Yeah. You've got to... Uh, You've got to stir the hearts here. What, can you? Can, is there something you guys can share? Can we have a mother-daughter uh, series so many. of poems? There are so many. <laughs> um, yeah, there's sometimes we both write on the same thing and we write it differently yeah. than sometimes. But yeah. when Radiance reads the poem, it, you know, I, I think it would also help her to share how she was dealing with a lot of racism mm -hmm. in her magnet school. They tell us, just get good education. This girl took 10 AP classes in her senior year. She barely, you know. 
And she was still experiencing, you know, a lot of racism and she would cry home, cry on the way home every day. And Mm. one day she said something and I said, well, good. And she said, mom, how can you say that? I said, write it out. Just because I came home crying. She came home crying. I said, okay, you're going to have to have an outlet. And she Mm. started writing poetry then. And then it just flowed and flowed and flowed. But Mm. she will, I'm going to turn it to radius because she was saying, you know, one of the points, um, was ignorance is a choice because a lot of people now, because of all of the things that are happening, you know, uh, George Floyd and Brianna and Arbery, they're like waking up like, oh, I didn't know that. And Radiance wrote a poem to some of those people called Ignorance is a Choice. Ah. That one. Go ahead, Radiance. Oh, yeah. beautiful. <laughs> I wrote this poem um, in response to hearing so many people saying, it's not my fault, I was ignorant. And I'm thinking, well, you, you know, it actually is. And <laughs> I wrote this poem to explain um, why that is. And also with this poem, I write, a, I, I've written many poems and I also sometimes write series of poetry. And this poem is actually in a series that I've called The Island. So just for some context, when I mention that, I mentioned the island in here, um, But basically, the island is a a metaphor for my heart and love and trust and the need to provide, to maintain um, safe barriers for protection against the outside world because I I have been hurt a lot. And that was, so I created a series called The Island. So this poem is called Ignorance is a Choice. Ignorance is so... Annoying and odd. So I've resolved to create a woke squad. I'll be waiting on the island. If you're educated, come apply. I want people who are activists, who actually care to try. It's strange that people don't know and they can learn everything else, but ignore hate crimes each day. They could have educated themselves. Privilege makes ignorance a choice. You're not reminded of your skin, and you're given more of a voice so news channels have a spin. It's a choice to only surround yourself with whites and not hear about those who are denied their rights. It's a choice to not reflect on your life and wonder why groups always have strife. It's a choice to side with the perpetrators and ignore the victims as if they're haters. It's a choice to be irritated with those who are bleeding and say it's all in the past so we should not be grieving. It's a choice to vote for an autocratic man who wants to oppress any POC he can. It's a choice to avoid guilt and pain since your life doesn't require strain. It's a choice to let us keep being attacked. You pretend to wonder why as you sit back. It's a choice to not know the system that you benefit from and think so many Blacks are poor because they are dumb. It's a choice to believe stereotypes that are a lie and not watch live videos of a dying man's cries. It's a choice to believe that you get a pass from knowing our world because of your class. It's a choice to think that you don't need to get involved. Racism has never been our problem to resolve. So I'm looking for people who actually care, who will stand up for us and actually be there. I'm looking for people who care about our plight, who will safeguard and support us to win the fight. Because if you love us, you'll fight for our rights. 
So I'm no longer wasting time with people who don't care, who don't think there is a problem and thus don't have time to spare. I'm spending time with people who think my life matters, not those who would rather spend their time with vain chatters. If you're riding in a car, you are allowed to go far. You don't have to worry about suddenly dying while your child sees you get shot and starts crying. You don't have to worry if you're holding a toy gun or fear that the police will plant drugs on your young son. It's a privilege to get far less time for any violent or minor crime. And you get to avoid going in the prison system even if you photograph yourself raping a victim. This privilege is not healthy. It's letting you escape your wrongs and it makes the innocent pay. The victim list is so long. You don't have to worry about being fodder for prison and keep track of the alt-right incidents that have risen. You don't have to worry about being accepted. And I'm frankly tired of us being rejected. So I'm looking for people that understand what's going on and who are passionate about justice and want to right all the wrongs. I'm looking for people who respect our spirit, who nurture our vision and want to hear it. I'm looking for people who are glad we exist, whose thoughts are not motivated by prejudice. I'm looking for people who care about me, who are helping people of my ethnicity. And it's unfortunate that this is hard to see. It's sad that it's rare for me to find woke peers, but I've become patient from waiting for years. So interested prospects may apply. I'm looking for those who care to try. The island is beautiful and the princess is sweet, but only the devout and committed get a seat. Only the devout and committed get a seat. Oh, that's great. That's powerful. And your reading really met it, made it. You know, it was the the pain that that drove that poem that created that poem was so clear thank you so much for sharing it really thank you it's powerful stuff thank you so i'll share one called get in the ring it's, it's similar to that and then radius and i both have a math point that we that we did that I, um but this one is called Wait. get in the ring um and now it's interesting people say okay i know i got to get in the ring okay I've been thrust into the ring and have no choice but to fight. Racist bullies are my opponents. I'm outnumbered by their color, and that just isn't right. I've been thrust into a ring where I'm outnumbered, not one of my choosing or making. The loser gets nothing but bruises, while the entire purse the winner will be taking. The odds are stacked and against me. On me winning, no one is making a bet because the heavyweights have more experience. We've had less experience sparring and preparing, and that's why we haven't won yet. It isn't a fair matchup, not in the least. On standby for casualties, they employ a priest. On the violence, the spectators roar and feast, getting more joy from violence than they do from peace. Opponents to my left and right and to my front and to my back. Seems like they're coming out of the woodwork these days. It's hard for me to know who's for me. It's hard to keep track. How am I to win in this ringed, rigged wing when the deck against me is so stacked? You say you are my ally, my protector, my friend. I'm in the boxing ring getting pounded, wondering when you will step in, especially when I'm being pelted and bombarded. 
from those who wish to kill me, who are wicked and evil hearted. You offer me encouragement to keep up the resistance, but only from the sidelines will you offer your assistance. Safe from the blood and safe from the violence. You pray for my safety, but you do it in silence. And if I scream loudly from my pain, you call me unprofessional or insane. From the theatrics, I should refrain. If on my side, I want you to remain. I'm labeled scary and angry. When to injustice, I protest. Naturally, loudly, I yell for I'm injured and responding to unbearable stress. I can't avoid this mess and I'm constantly under duress, but you want to see in me a bit more control and finesse so that you don't feel uncomfortable at best. I wish you could feel the pounding in my chest. And when I yell about the injustice, all that you see is aggression. And when I confront you, you explain, but, not, but I'm not assured by your lukewarm confession. You don't focus on the attack the hostility against me or the fact that it's not my fault because you are focusing more on my response to the pain instead of the unprovoked assault. And you don't feel the pain I feel, but only feel what you choose because you don't see the deep scars from re-injuring my slow healing wounds. You only see a flesh wound or perhaps a bruise. You want me to modulate my tone and tension that my delivery is perhaps causing more dissension. I'm under attack. But that fact you forgot to mention, if I die in the ring, I won't collect a pension. There's no compensation for racism's bumps and bruises, especially when the judges are the opponent and refuses to recuse. You want to be my ally and from my hurts I cry? You remain quiet as my tears fell thinking yourself better because you did not yell. If I'm in danger, I want you to yell and scream it from the rooftops and to everyone tell of the danger that it waits and the fear of our fate. There is no time to whisper and wait when the enemy's at the gate. You say you want to help me? Well, jump in the ring with me. But you dally because it is not comfortable for you. While I hang on for deal life, you pray I will pull through. You want to be an ally? Then jump in the ring and block the punches. If you are too weak, then start doing crunches. You want to be an ally? Then I need you in the ring, not encouraging safely in your comfort zone where you are protected from the shots and the swings. Yes, you patch me up when I am hurt. You bandage my bloody, swollen, and beaten face. You bring me water when I'm thirsty, but I need you in the ring, sometimes fighting in my place. If you really love me, jump in the ring and protect me like you would if this were your mother or child. While your prayers for my safety are appreciated, a coldness from the racist isn't warmed by your smile. You say you want to be an ally and it hurts you to see me hurt and cry. I need you to challenge the referees and the racist rules and how they score. Why are yours so rich and why are mine poor? I want you to ask, why am I thrown in the ring when other than being born black, I haven't done a thing. I want you to do something about the hatred you see. That's how you can protect and at the same time, help me. You patch me up and push me back in the ring. And other than that, you don't do a thing, but buy more bandages, kneel, sporin, and gauze and remind me of how much you are down for the cause. Do you really want to be an ally? 
or just to have a front seat in case I win? Are you here for me? Are you here for you? Are you a spectator, a fan, or are you a true friend? Guilt is a form of ego. It's really all about you. Using the downtrodden to ease your pain is par for the course and not really anything new. We've been used for your entertainment to work, serve, and give your life more ease. But are you in the ring for justice or for your own shame you wish to appease? So why do you want to be an ally? Why do you want to be here? Is it for justice, guilt, or shame? Let's be clear. Or is it a quid pro quo in case the tables turn and you want me as your ally so you don't have to fear? I can't wait until you feel comfortable. I can't wait for you to, per to perfect your skill. I can't wait because the fight is ongoing and the opponents are out to maim and kill. This isn't a sparring round. This isn't a sparring round. This is for real. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Some move into action while some are stalled. Many are called, but few are chosen. Some arise with exuberant faith and action. Others overwhelmed, impotent, and frozen. Many have the opportunity, but he will not choose them all. For those still playing it safe while we die in the ring, I think the creator would be appalled. Prophets don't play it safe. Most died to save us all. And we won't conquer racism staying in our comfort zones or playing it small. Get in the ring. Get in the ring. Get in the ring. Okay, I'm getting in the ring. Okay. <laughs> okay already. All right. I get the message. I'm getting I'm, where is where's the ring? I'm, I'm there. Let me get my gloves. Let me get my chainsaw, whatever it takes. Uh, thank you so much. Um, you know, from both of you, such passion in these poems, uh, incredible rhymes, and so such a kind of searing, anguish-filled personal expression, and kind of a, a need, a want for real allies behind both of the poems. One about people that mask themselves in ignorance, and one about you know, needing the, the help of people that have been sitting on the sidelines. So tell, tell me about that for the white listeners, the Persian listeners. Uh, um, what, do you need, what do you need from us? What does it mean for a Baha'i in 2020 to get in the ring on, in this fight? You know, and one of the comments that inspired my poem and was that often Baha'is and I don't know how this belief was created, but some think that it's political to be in a protest or, or say you're an activist or that you're for social justice. I mean, Baha'is have told me that, oh, Baha'is shouldn't be activists or social justice for anything, which really wounded me to hear. And it was just deeply disappointing. And I often when, you know, and which is also reflected in my mother's poem, too, is that when we try to be vocal about it and speak up, they're saying, oh, no, like, that's controversial. And, you know, oh, you're, you're making, well, you're, you're making us uncomfortable. The atmosphere's cold. And I think a lot of that belief system is really based on a confusion of the writings and our principles and our message. Because mm -hmm. Shoghi Effendi, Abdu'l-Baha, all of them, they were radicals. They were activists. They stood for social justice. 
with with Tahare going in front of a bunch of men and taking off her veil, that was activism, serious activism. With Shoghi Avendi saying, like, okay, Germany has her problem, India has her problem, Persia has her problem, but America's problem is between the black and the white. That's what we need to deal with. He was very persistent, and he was very straightforward with that. But often, Baha'is, they pick, like, you know, the kind of turn-the-other-cheek type of quotes, oh, we're not supposed to, you know, arouse any discomfort. But the thing about it is we forget the quotes that, um, when in our writings, they say, if it is praiseworthy to exercise your anger and wrath against bloodthirsty tyrants, you know, or the quotes like, you don't have to be kind to the liar, the tyrant, or the thief. Well, what are these people that are shooting us down? They are tyrants, you know, they, and also, you know, we forget that, you know, in the writings they're talking about, I mean, yes, there's this element of forgiveness, but that's on the individual, the community, or institutions, or community, uh, community members of a whole are supposed to rise up and expected to stand for stand for justice and to punish the criminals. And I, there's just often, I think, a lot of confusion about that and surrounding that. But the thing about it is, and also with po- politics, is we're not supposed to be part of, be involved in partisan po- politics, but a lot of um, the faith actually does involve actual policy. And we forget that the Universal House of Justice said that social justice is central to the Baha'i revelation. And I think, and often people forget that and they don't understand how standing up for our rights and for people of color and for, you know, being active about it, that that is being a Baha'i. So, and then, and there is so much, you know, that our writings have offered about that. You know, some people have asked us, oh, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, you know, there are a lot of a lot of ways to express solidarity and show support. Um, and the thing about it is everybody, not everybody um, is involved in the criminal justice system and the police and the police force, for example. But the thing about it is everybody has their own areas of influence. You know, there there is we racism is woven into the fabric of our society. So it's affecting affecting every aspect of our lives. So whether you're um, a, a therapist and there's a lot of racism in psychology and and, um, pe- and people of color are being over-admitted into psychiatric hospitals because there's a lack of cultural understanding and a lot of clinician bias, well, that's an area that you can get involved in. Or if you actually are involved in, in the um, justice system and you you, and you do have power over implicit bias training and screening and and who you admit or don't admit into the force or whether it's with law and in the court system or whether it's the um, educational system with you know just or the media and entertainment industry I think one of the biggest problems why we have so many stereotypes is because they would always show black people as criminals and thugs and or just stupid or lazy and they would just exemplify all these stereotypes well you know you can write scripts to you know and empower black people show us in a positive light everybody has their own arena of influence and so there is never a reason to feel helpless i also really i really love shogi Effendi's writings with and the advent of divine justice you know he also spoke about you know what we should be doing 
every day, every, all the time with our, you know, and with our individual interactions. Of course, this also applies to um, on a bigger level as well, but, you know, having a supreme effort, you know, they, he, he, he addressed bias back then with the subconscious sense of superiority and, mm-hmm. you know, patronizing attitude and, you know, show the genuous and warmth and sincerity of your response. And, you know, and often I, people kind of forget that they were like, like whenever I would, uh, sometimes when I would try to, you know, spotlight that they're like, well, you know, black people are supposed to, you're supposed to forgive and do all that stuff. But the thing about it is, as my mom always points, points out, that's in a corresponding effort. You were supposed to make the first move. Our response is a supreme one at that. Yes. So until (laughs) you do that, like I don't have to forgive all the past when you haven't atoned for them. Yeah. And just with what a rectitude of conduct, you know, actually is. It's it's that's all about that's an undeviating sense of justice, which can be manifested and reflected in so many different ways. That interracial fellowship, that freedom from prejudice. And you know, I think it's just important for people to remember that you're not immune to the disease because you're Baha'i. Our, our writings, our institutions, our letters have spoken about that. Well, I, I think that that's a, a very common uh, belief, misnomer. When I was growing up Baha'i, I think a lot of like uh, the white Baha'i community that I grew up with in Seattle kind of felt like, well, I'm not racist because I'm a Baha'i and I believe we're all one human family. So I've done enough. And then that's, that's it, but not doing anything. I didn't see any Baha'is I was growing up with doing anything to rectify the situation, to increase equity and justice, to fight for the rights of the disenfranchised, to, to stand up. Um, They just kind of, it was a very passive stance, you know, and let deeds, not words be your adorning. Where are the deeds? If you believe that you're not racist, where are your anti-racist deeds? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's been an unfortunate kind of de facto passive fallback position by I think a lot of white Baha'is over the years, and you know I think the circumstances in the present day are are, are changing that they're they're mixing things up and showing us all Baha'i and non-Baha'i how important. Um, making a stand is and actively being an anti-racist. And I'd like to share something with that same question and Radiance alluded to most of that. In the, you know, even in 1938, Shogi Effendi said, we are in a double crusade. A crusade is a, is a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war. People are not acting like they're in a spiritual war, but we are. And he told us, he said that a rectitude of conduct, like you just said, are you doing something? Uh, he says, a holiness and chastity. We know if you're holy and you're chaste, there's also a, a part of that is, is truthfulness. What's the truth about what's been happening to black people? Are, are you, uh, have you read up? Have you taken the time to learn? You know, with the rectitude of conduct, as Radiant said, one of the first things was an, an, an undeviating sense of justice. Undeviating. So if you get, the, you know, truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. Abdu'l-Bahá said that the purpose of life is to acquire virtues. So when, when people ask us what we can do, it's like, do what Abdu'l-Bahá told you to do. First, seek out the truth, investigate the truth. Independent investigation of truth is one of our principles. But when it comes to black people, don't, don't, don't drop the rules. And so a, a rectitude of conduct, a holiness and chastity, and an interracial fellowship, Shogi Effendi says, these are the weapons, the weapons which the American believers 
can and must wield in their double crusade. He goes on to say the perfection of such, such weapons. If we're going into a spiritual war, we got to make sure we know how to use the weapon. You can hurt somebody. You hurt yourself. And he says, the perfection of such weapons, the wise and effective utilization of every one of them. And he says, more than the furtherance of any particular plan, more than the devising of any special scheme, more than the accumulation of any amount of material resources can prepare them for the time when the hand of destiny will have directed them to assist in creating in and bringing into operation that world order, which is now incubating within the worldwide administrative institutions of their faith. So when people say what to do, if you look at those three things, those three weapons that we must wield, have that indiscretion, just looking at the one and, and interracial fellowship. In many of our communities, we come together and we pray together. We'll have a devotional. We may be in a study circle together. We may be in a feast. We may be in an LSA meeting. But and, and, and from, from what I've been hearing from many people of the eye, and it's definitely clear in my circumstances, that's where it ends. We don't hang out together. We don't, we're, not, we're not part of each other's lives. We might as well call it the Baha'i Association in many spaces. You know, they, it's not that they won't call Radiance and I to, 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 uh, to, to speak or come do a poem. But when do you invite us to dinner? When do you just say, hey, I'm just going to go over to the mall? This, this is pre-COVID, you know. But when are we, when, let's, we're, we're having some family members to do whatever. We don't get that. I mean, there's a few people, there's a few exceptions, you know, uh, that we have, you know. But, but, but by would, and large. I would totally go to the mall with you guys. <laughs> are you uh, yeah, Really? Okay. Let's we're go gonna, to the mall. We're going to hold you to that. <laughs> there's some great malls in Maryland, I hear. Next time I'm out there. We're well, I hear there's some great ones in the mall. We're going to go to... We're going to go to the food court. We're going to get Orange Julius, some corn dogs. Well, we're vegan. The well, we're vegan, but, so but I'll vegan get the corn, home. but not the dog. But we can still, <laughs> okay, we're still okay. holding you to that, right? Sea World, you heard him say he's taking us to the mall. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's interesting, this double crusade you you bring up, because I, I, I surreptitiously on my computer Googled it while you were speaking. So it's not like I have this quote on the tip of my tongue. But Shogi Effendi uh, when someone asked what was the double crusade, he said, first to regenerate the inward life of their own community and next to assail, mm -hmm. assail, that's a strong word, the longstanding evils that have entrenched themselves in the life of their nation. So this is what we've all been referring to, this idea, this kind of passivity in the Baha'i community that has been just focusing on the first part. We're trying to regenerate the inward life of the community. We'll have some nice tea and cookies and, and potlucks and, and prayer meetings, but the next part to assail the longstanding evils that have entrenched themselves in the life of our, of our nation. So um, now the world is kind of doing for us what we haven't been doing for the last several decades and with these kind of protests and uprisings. Um, how do we not go back to normal? How do we not just make this another, you know, Rodney King uprising or a Trayvon Martin demonstration. How do we take the energy that's in the world right now, that's on the streets, um, that's in the media, and three months from now, six months from now, 17 months from now, keep keep moving forward? Well, one thing, Rain, um, most people, we had the Pupil of the Eye Conference in November of 2019, and we're going to have another one next week. And it's, of course, going to be virtual. But we didn't just stop. It wasn't just something we did six months ago. 
Many of those that left that conference went back to their own communities and brought together pupils of the eye that were estranged or that may have you know, not been in the faith for a while, or they left the faith. Uh, and they basically, their, their job was to go back, go uplift those folks. Now that you are on fire, go back and unlift that, uplift those folks. I mean, one of the things that was, that occupied a great amount of my time over the last six months from December through now is that I went, I came onto a prayer call that had been going on for 11 years and they had been praying for our conference and they were just excited because many of the members had come to the conference and they, someone said, Hey, they're talking about the conference. Come on. Of course, I'm going to go hear what they're saying. You know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours later and six months later, I'm going, you know, I, I'm, it's a call that's seven days a week, seven days a week, people from all over the country and some people around the world come on and they pray for an hour and a half. They sing, they pray for 11 years. You know, James Williams started that 11 years ago. And the woman that he started praying for uh, actually died on the prayer call. She was in a hospital and every day he said, she'd come on and says, I'm here. And then at the end, when she says goodbye, she never said, said goodbye. The nurse picked up and said she passed by. She passed while she was listening to the prayers. But this prayer call has been going on seven wow. days a week for mm. 11 years straight. So we came there, but they weren't talking about the most vital and challenging issue. But they had a very fertile ground of prayer. And we know that in prayer, there's a mingling of stations. There's a mingling of conditions. We know that in prayer, the, the angels of the Almighty will scatter abroad the words uttered by their mouth and cause the heart of every righteous man to throb. So it was some very fertile ground. And what I've done is I came in and created something called Foundation Hall University. If you go to www.worldembracing.net, how do you give, uh, how do you give you know, physical experience to something that's a virtual phone call? Converse, it, was a, it was a conference call that would call you every morning, California time, 6 a.m., and people would pray. And uh, so we, I came to that space. How do, you how do you give substance to a conference call? And what I've done over the last six months is I created, I created a website, a website for a prayer call. And so we leave the prayer and we mentally say, now we're going down into Foundation Hall. And now in Foundation Hall, we're going to have a discussion about the most vital and challenging issue. So we have gone through Sadie Oglesby's document. We have gone through Glenford Mitchell's How to Teaching Negroes because Shelby Effendi said, we don't do that, we will be dispersed. And then we've also gone through Derek Smith's uh, Modernity and Centering the People of the Eye. Now we're, we're studying, we're studying uh, Evan and Divine Justice, this rectitude of conduct, this holiness and chastity, this interracial fellowship, the double crusade. So we're spending, I mean, literally, we've been in the university for seven days a week. For the last six, and now people are coming in every day. There's about ten more people because we didn't tell everybody. Now everybody I know because everybody listens to the veins. Wow! So this is a, something that we can just join. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so you, I know you've typed in and you've gone to the website now, so you can um, www.worldembracing.net. And we have, you know, we literally have people in Canada. You know, we've got people all over the place that come in and there's different days uh, that we study different things like Monday through Thursday. We all speak together on whatever topic on Monday, like last Monday, we had Ken Bowers come in and talk from the, uh, from the national spiritual assembly. People want to ask Ken, why did, why did they, people were asking me, why doesn't the NSA do this? I said, I don't know. Let's ask him. So we brought him on. Uh, we, uh, so on Tuesdays, it's like an orientation. You get to know who the Baha'is are, what their Baha'i story is. On Wednesdays, it's consultation day. So topics that come up that people are saying, why is this? We can 
uh, look at the writings, what the writings say about that. You'll notice if you go there right now, there's a lot of stuff on forgiveness. Probably when they hear this, it may be may, something else may also have scrolled it down. But we, we've learned that many people know about consultation, but we really don't know how to consult. So we basically, before we talk on a topic, and we've learned that by trial and error, we don't just have everybody give us their opinions. Now, when we want to consult about something that, that, that's challenging us, we say, what do the writings say about that? So we'll spend a day or so reading the writings, what they say about that. And then we have our consultation. On Thursdays, even before we got that compilation from the Universal House of Justice and the National Spiritual Assembly, we had already started picking out letters that from the Universal House of Justice that had to do with the most vital and challenging issue, racism, prejudice, African-American. And we were studying those. And wow. you know, when any, yeah. when any letter comes out from the Universal House of Justice, we stop whatever's on the program and we spend three, four days. Like the May 9th letter, we must have spent four days on that thing. Wow. And when people get to it in their community, we're like, yeah, we've already done that. On Fridays That's and great. Saturdays, the podies, the people of the eye can discuss things and the sodies are, are, are asked to stay in the room after prayer, but to be silent and listen. So we're flexing mm-hmm. their listening skills. On Sunday, the podi, the sodies will speak about whatever they're, what they're feeling and whatever around the most vital and challenging issue. And the podies stay in the room and we just listen. So people feel mm-hmm. a little bit of comfort to be able to talk about stuff that they never had a place to talk about. We mm-hmm. also have mm-hmm. resources on there when people say, what can I do? Uh, you can go there um, and there's a, a dismantle anti-blackness. There's all kinds of resources and videos and everything on there. And um, all the letters that we're studying are on, on, on the website under, under resources. As so everything I've mentioned about uh, Derek's document, uh, 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 Glenford Mitchell's document, uh, Sadie Oglesby stuff, all of that's there. And we've encouraged people, look, this is a resource for all of you. Start a group right where you are and say, hey, let's go to, you know, click on the document we're going to study. So it doesn't really matter. You can have a study circle about the most vital and challenging issue with anybody on the planet because you don't have to worry about getting a docu- document to them. You click on it. It's on your screen. You get to read it. Wow. And so we've been extremely busy uh, from the moment uh, uh, that the conference ended uh, till the next one. In fact, I'm, I'm so late getting out the stuff for the next one just because I've been in that space uh, making sure we have facilitators for each day, note takers. It's very structured and organized. And so now we have yeah. an online seven-day-a-week university talking about the most vital and challenging issues. So your question is, what are we doing? We're waking up folks. We're waking up folks. We're educating folks. We're giving them language when they go out in their communities and don't know how to respond to, well, why don't black people, you know, stop black on black crime? I mean, but I don't see color. You come into this space, you get educated real quick about not mm. saying that, first of all, but what you should say if somebody says some of that nonsense to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, listen, guys, we're, we're, we're out of time and I didn't even get to hear your stories. So <laughs> this was kind of crazy. There was so much to talk about with People of the Eye Conference and your poetry and uh, this most vital and challenging issue. Real quick, because we because we don't have a whole lot of time. Three things you want people to know about you before we go. Okay, um, I'll give Radiance a little chance to think. Uh, the first thing I want people to know is that about me is that I'm a first generation Baha'i. Mm-hmm. Nobody, none of my siblings or any of them are Baha'i. Uh, that I grew up in upstate New York. My father was a, a migrant worker. So uh, we grew up in very, very poor circumstances. I also have six children and 15 grandchildren. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. That's great. How, what, when, what year did you become a Baha'i and when did, how did you hear about it? 
Well, it was in the um, uh, early uh, 70s. There were some Baha'i youth that I didn't know who Baha'i was. You know, I was part of the church. And they had something at a, uh, at a local community center. And they said they were inviting people. It was pizza and roller skating. And so I went. I'm like, I like pizza at the time. Um, and roller skating was fun. So I went. And then someone came up to me and said, do you believe that we are all one? I'm like, yeah. Do you believe that? Uh, that we should have be equal and have equality and, and, and the same rights. And, you know, they asked three questions that only an idiot would say no to. I said, yes. And then they said, you sound like a Baha'i. And I'm like, okay. And they're saying, would you sign this card? Do you want to be a, do you want to be one? And I thought, I really thought it was a club. Nobody, you know, <laughs> I don't remember anything about God. Yeah. I mean, definitely there wasn't anything about, you know, a, a sermon or anything like that. It was pizza roller skating, different, diverse people coming together. Now, I was in upstate New York, so there was lots of white folks. In fact, I was anomaly there. There weren't that many black families, maybe five black families that stayed there year round in upstate New York where I lived. So white folks, you saw them all the time anyway. So we were coming together, but they, it seemed like they were trying to have some more socialness, uh, what we should be doing now. They were trying back then. And so when I signed, so I signed the card saying, OK. Then I started getting this Baha'i newsletter and I'm thinking, gosh, well, I asked the person, I said, are there any dues you have to pay? pay? And they said, oh, no, because I, I thought it was a club and there were dues. And they said, no. I said, well, what do I have to have? I'm not losing anything by signing. So the newsletter started coming and coming. And I thought, Baha'i, that's a really big club. I mean, it was I mean, I, went, I literally got baptized twice after that and almost became a Muslim before I realized what a Baha'i was, even though I had signed the card. <laughs> Someone told me once and say it's a religion. I said, no, 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 no. It's a club. They're like, girl. It's a know. club. It's a pizza roller skating club. It's a pizza club. roller skating club. You know, we'd probably be doing better if we had more pizza and roller skating, don't you think? <laughs> so that's, that's Radiance, kind of what about you? What about you? Three things we need to know about you before we end this interview. Um, well, I'm a poet um, and I hope to published books of my po of my poems soon, like my mom has. Um, I'm also a writer. I'm a staff writer for BahaiTeachings.org, and I've written a lot of articles for them about um, justice and, and also healing. And when I was in college, I, I would, you know, plan a lot of events on campus um, to, you know, raise awareness of, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, injustice and promote healing. And, and actually, um, and we still do firesides. We just temporarily stopped for COVID. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, and it was actually one unique experience that we had was um, I invited this woman named Dr. Helena Hicks to speak. And um, she actually integrated lunch counters in Baltimore. And I went to the University of Maryland College Park and you know, we thought, why don't we invite her here to talk about uh, for Women's History Month to talk about, you know, her her story of just what she's done, you know, as a civil rights pioneer. What what we actually learned in the process of inviting her, we didn't realize how what big of a deal it was for her to even accept because she told us, you know, uh, I I went to the University of Maryland to get um, her doctorate, and she experienced. Um, some racism with one person not wanting to review her doc, her what do you call it? Her dissertation. Her dissertation. Her dissertation. And she was just so heartbroken, and she said, "You know, you can just mail my diploma. Like, I'm not gonna walk down, you know, with the cap and gown with the graduation ceremony. I'm like, I'm not coming back to this campus again." 
So it was a really uh, special experience for her to, for mm. me to ask and for her to come. Um, mm. mm-hmm. And she was just, she was still hurting from that. And, you know, and she mentioned that there. And um, one thing that happened though, um, one of the directors for the Multicultural Involvement and Community Advocacy Organization at that school, um, he came and he heard her story. And my mom was like, well, you, you know, you you celebrate, you know, pioneers and diversity all the time on campus. You know, is there a way to make this right and give her some, you know, acknowledge all the she service she was old done. at this point. She was very old. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So they actually created a distinguished alumni award and they had their award ceremony at the end of that year and you know they honored her with an award and she stood up and she said time heals all wounds Mm. and that was just that was one of the most moving moments of my college experience to to see her heal or start to heal and the Baha'i Club we were also nominated for awards in um, community service and service learning, cross-cultural involvement, um, community development, personal development. And we won the plaque in personal development, outstanding contributions to the campus community and personal development. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so that was that was a pretty special experience, and from there I learned how to earn editorial coverage for our events, and it was cool to see the Baha'i Club and all these different school publications, and and people were were telling me they're like, you know, we thought the Baha'i Club was dead for many years, but I see it's alive again. Like, so it was just it was really rewarding to have that service on campus and make a difference in that woman's life. Oh, that's amazing. That's a that's a fantastic story. Did I read that you lived overseas? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was your What was your experience like and your take yeah. there being an African American living in Was it France and Germany? And and um, England. Oh, great! And I also visited Ireland too. Um, yeah, that was that was a very unique experience. I actually wrote a poem for each experience. Um, yeah, I was studying abroad there back in college. I graduated in May of 2019, um, but I, I was studying abroad like my second or third year in college. And it was a really, um, it was a really unique experience. You know, I think it was good for me to um, have more, you know, independence and, and um, really um, increase my co- confidence and you learn a lot about the culture and and the people and just different things that, you know, the U S could take notes on and like healthcare. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah. And like, yeah. Like within Berlin, like most people use natural remedies and like we're, we're vegans and organic and really, and all that stuff. But um, every, every city had its own character and beauty. So that was really cool to see. Wonderful. All right. You guys, thank you so much for your time. The first ever mother daughter uh, <laughs> podcast on Baha'i Blogcast. And thank you so much for taking time on your busy schedule and, and, and best of luck with the future Rise People of the Eye conferences. And so wonderful to hear your perspective. And thank you for sharing your hearts and your poetry with us today. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. And don't forget, you owe us a mall thing. <laughs> That's right. We're going to go mall walking. There we go. <laughs> mall walking. There we go. Uh, fantastic. Thank All you, right. Pallies. All right. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.